You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the Tube Sock Killer. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited for today's episode, but first off, let's address the elephant in the room. No, no, no. Your eyes do not deceive you. I really did release two episodes this week. Uh, Next week is spring break for me and my little crew, so I wanted to make sure that I was like entirely present for them so that we can make memories and whatnot. Uh, So I will not be releasing an episode next week, which is why I released two for you today. How lucky are you? Uh, Today's case, it is a wild one. The name (laughs) is very attention grabbing. More on that in a hot minute. But before we begin, I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping. If you are not already following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, um, I'm sorry, but WTF, dude. Like, what are you trying to prove? You're only hurting yourself. Um, it, don't, don't you know that if you follow me, you will be the first to know about new episodes, giveaways, merch, and events. You'll also be able to be a part of a true crime loving community where you can like bounce ideas around regarding the cases that we cover. You can DM me a case suggestion about a case that we haven't covered, but you wish that we would. Uh, At least once a week, I will pop on stories and brief you on our cases, oftentimes providing you with context or content that isn't even covered on the episode itself. It is a good time. So don't miss out. Hit that follow button on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. I also have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge 76. Yes, you heard that right. 76 episodes. Can you believe it? Honestly, if you would have told me two years ago that I would be releasing my 76th episode today, I wouldn't have believed you because I was struggling to even write the first one. Um, But I'm not a regular podcaster. No, no, no. I'm a cool podcaster and I don't ask for much. You will figure if you're new around here, you're going to learn that I really don't ask for much. I don't ask for your money. I don't ask you to join a Patreon. I am so chill and laid back. But there is one little thing you can do for me. Would you please leave me a review wherever it is you love listening to your podcasts? This will help me get on the radar. Right now, I am hanging off to the side like a nerd at prom, but I want to show people my kick-ass dance moves in the middle of that circle, baby. And that's where you come in, my friend, when you leave a review, especially a good one. This will raise my standing in the ranks and people on the hunt for a new true crime podcast. And we've all been there. Haven't we all been there? Uh, They're going to find me. So thank you. Another way to help would be to tell your friends and family about me because word of mouth is and will always continue to be the best referral. Oh, and back to the name of this episode. I told you that I would talk to you about it in a little second. So Tube Sock Killer. For some reason, and I have no idea why, (laughs) when I saw the name of this case, 
In my mind, I pictured like this tube sock wielding psycho who had like filled his tube sock with like a bunch of coins and was like whipping people to death. I don't know, y'all. I think I'm getting too old or I've just seen it all. And so I'm just going way off to left field. (laughs) But no, that is not why this killer is called the tube sock killer. So if you're like me and you thought that that was the case, you might be disappointed. You might be feeling that I sullied the entire episode for you. But I do admire the creativity and the outside of the box thinking because I myself was just like you. All right. I think that that's probably all of the anti-mortem context that I'm going to share. So without further delay, let's get into today's episode. It all started at Kmart. On the afternoon of December 12th, 1985, Kmart employees noticed a little girl wandering around their front door. The employees agreed that the little girl could not have been older than three. At first, they just watched her because, as we all know, it's pretty common at like department stores for children to become separated from their parents. Perhaps the little girl had played a game of hide-and-seek in the clothing rack, a game her parents weren't privy to. And so the employees imagined that soon a panic mother or father would come out of the woodworks and retrieve their little girl. However, the little girl stood dazed for several minutes before an employee was like, okay, this is a safety hazard. I'm going to go out there and bring this little girl inside. When the little girl was brought into the store, the employees began asking her questions. What is your name? How old are you? Who are you here with today? Are you lost? Where are your parents? What are their names? But the little girl wouldn't or couldn't answer. The employees couldn't know for sure. One of the employees popped over the intercom system and made what I would assume to be a very bizarre call-out announcement. (laughs) Something along the lines of, Hello, Kmart employees. Did you lose someone? If you did, she's up here, so... uh." come and get her, I guess. After they made this in-store announcement, no one responded. So they did the next best thing. They called the police. The police came and asked the little girl all the same questions, but she wouldn't answer them either. The police decided to take her to the hospital to get her checked out, and then CPS came and put her into emergency foster care. The police took her picture and sent it to the media who plastered the image on every news channel and every newspaper. Everyone involved assumed that soon the little girl would be reunited with her parents, right? Three days after this strange discovery in a Kmart parking lot, a woman by the name of Louise Conrad saw the image of this little girl in the newspaper. Immediately, her stomach sank. She knew that the picture of the little girl staring back at her was her granddaughter, Crystal. Before calling the police, she called her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend. When they didn't answer, she knew something was terribly wrong. Even though her daughter and her boyfriend had had their issues, they apparently could agree on one thing. Their daughter, Crystal. There was no way that they would voluntarily leave her or abandon her at a Kmart parking lot. So Louise phoned the police, and after providing with them with enough adequate information that the police believed that she was indeed Crystal's grandmother, the two were reunited. 
When Crystal caught a glimpse of her grandmother Louise, her eyes brightened more than they had for the last three days. She ran and hugged her grandmother, refusing to let go. While Crystal hadn't spoken a word to the Kmart employees, the police, the hospital staff, or her emergency foster family, she would open up to her grandmother. Louise held Crystal close, took her little hand, and asked, Crystal, where is mommy? Crystal recoiled, looked up at her grandmother, and quietly said, Mommy is in the trees. Mommy is in the trees. Mommy is in the trees. Over and over and over again. Because of Crystal's age, it was difficult to get too many facts out of her regarding that statement, but Louise was able to provide police with the names of Crystal's parents. It was Mike and Diana. She was also able to tell them where they lived. The family lived in a home near a huge river. Mike and Diana had been quarreling on and off for years. It was kind of like that typical cycle. They would bicker, break up, get restraining orders against each other, and then reconcile. Bicker, break up, get restraining orders against each other, and then reconcile. Mike apparently had a violent temper, so Louise is very worried that Mike might have done something to her daughter, Diana. By trade, Mike was a roofer. But in the cold winter months when roofing wasn't possible, he made money as a trapper. So he would basically set out traps in remote areas of the woods that surrounded his property. And he would catch like muskrats and possums and whatever else lives in the woods in wintertime with hair. I don't know. Bunnies and crap. (laughs) I don't know. He would catch them and he would sell the fur. Louise told the police about a place deep in the woods that the family enjoyed camping. Perhaps those were the trees Crystal was referring to. I did find it a little odd that they were camping in the middle of December because it just seemed a little bit Susan Powell-y to me. Uh, But Louise actually assured the police that this was not out of character nor out of the norm For this family, Mike was an avid outdoorsman. Uh, He knew those woods like the back of his hand. And one thing Louise knew for sure was that Mike was certainly a man who loved living off of the land. And her daughter Diana just kind of went with the flow. Louise didn't know the exact location, but she knew approximately the area where the family liked to go camping. She also relayed to police that Mike drove a bright red truck. Police took what Louise had given them and started to search. They assumed that with the bright white snow, that a red truck would be pretty easy to find. They started at Mike and Diana and Crystal's home. Uh, There was no evidence that anyone had been there recently. There was no evidence of struggle. Uh, So then they went into the woods. So the police just kind of threw everything they had at this case. They sent helicopters, canine units. There were search parties. Everybody was looking for any kind of clue that would indicate where Mike and Diana were or where they might have gone. After searching for a few days, the search was cut off. It was called off because the terrain was just too vast. It was too dangerous and they couldn't feasibly dedicate any more time or resources to looking for them. People went off and did their own search parties, but these were no longer sanctioned by police. These were just like citizens in the community that were doing it out of the goodness of their own heart. Police knew that as time passed and perhaps as the weather warmed up, something would hopefully come about. It took three months, but the police were right. 
a local man and his dog were taking a walk deep into the woods when they stumbled across something unusual. Pulled off to the side of a lumber road was a bright red truck. It was absolutely covered in snow and like ice and it hadn't snowed recently so right away the man knew that this truck had had to have been parked there for a very long time. As he and his dog got closer to the vehicle they got a little curious you know as you know curiosity killed the cat you know. Uh, The man brushed snow off of the passenger's side window and looked inside completely saturating the passenger seat appeared to be a substantial amount of blood. Right then and there, the man and his puppers <laughs> pieced out of there because they knew that they were about 10 miles away from any real source of civilization. They did not want to be out there if, for whatever reason, the murderer was still out there. When they got home, the man immediately called 911. When police arrived at the scene of the truck, they saw what the man had seen. They went to the back bumper of the car and wiped snow off of the license plate. It was then confirmed that the truck was in fact the red truck that belonged to Mike. Police began a search with the truck as the epicenter. About a mile and a half away, police stumbled across the body of Diana. She had been viciously stabbed 18 to 20 times. There was also a tube sock tied around her neck. They continued to search for Mike, but they couldn't find him anywhere. This led police to a theory. You see, during the previous summer, only about 15 miles away, in those very woods, there had been some similar deaths to two unsuspecting campers. It was a lovely summer's day when Ruth Cooper and her boyfriend Stephen Harkins decided to make the 10-mile trek to a beautiful little spot to enjoy a weekend of camping. When Cooper and Harkins didn't return to work the following Monday morning, Both families were worried, and they filed missing persons reports. It was just so unlike the two to miss work without calling in. Four days later, hikers discovered the dead body of Stephen Harkins inside of his sleeping bag. It appeared he had been shot in the head as he had laid sleeping. But there was no sign of Ruth. Two months later, on October 26, a skull was found near Hart's Lake, a mile and a half from the tent where Cooper and Harkins had been sleeping when they were probably blitz-attacked. Ruth had been shot in the stomach, and a tube sock was found wrapped around her throat. The medical examiner believed that the long sock, commonly used in sports, had been used more so as a restraining method rather than a weapon. While the police had a lot of information as to how this attack had occurred, there was still no solid lead pointing to the individual responsible. These police officers thought it seemed very similar to another double murder that had occurred nearly a year before. In 1984, Edward Smith and Kimberly Levine had recently graduated college. The two moved to Kent, Washington to start a new life together with their new careers. They both worked as government accountants. Being new to the area, the couple were excited to explore all that Washington State had to offer. So on March 9th, the couple made the decision to go on a weekend getaway in Grand County off the I-90. What horrors the two experienced that first night, we may never know. But what is known is that the night ended in murder. Edward Smith's body was found in a gravel pit. His hands were tied behind his back and his throat had been slit. Two weeks later, Diane Levine was discovered. She was found in sagebrush two miles away from her fiancé. Just like the previous two couples, 
Diane and Mike had also planned a camping trip and intended to both use the occasion to spend time as a family, select a Christmas tree to bring home, and Mike would take the opportunity to check his many traps. As we know, the two also brought along with them their two-year-old daughter, Crystal. So knowing all of this, all of that stuff, police came up with a theory. Especially when inside the vehicle, they found a manila folder that simply read, I love you, Diana. So the police theorized that because Mike was so familiar with the woods in this area, and because he had not yet been found, they believed that Mike must have become territorial about this area that he worked in. And they believe that when Mike was out setting or checking his traps, he must have encountered these couples, these couples that had been murdered previously. They thought that he became so enraged that they were on his land, even though it wasn't really even his land, um, that he might have killed them. Then with the tumultuous seesawing relationship that had been witnessed by several people, he must have just gotten mad at Diana for something and killed her. He had not been able to kill his own daughter, so he wound up driving her 30 miles to a Kmart parking lot, dropped her off, and skipped town. Yep, you heard me correctly. They believe that Mike Reimer was the tube sock killer. And this belief, albeit pretty wild and without evidence, stuck for a while, and it didn't help that even Mike's own father, when questioned by police, agreed that it was certainly possible that Mike had been responsible for Diana's death. He was aware of his son's previous violent encounters with her. Wouldn't you know, it would be 22 years before Mike's name was finally cleared, because on March 26, 2011, a hiker was in the woods near Mineral, Washington, about a mile from where Diana's body had been found all those years ago. This hiker saw something very odd in the distance, so he walked over to it. It was actually a discarded vacuum cleaner. He kind of chuckled because it's kind of odd to find a vacuum cleaner in the middle of the woods, and he lifted it up. However, when he lifted the vacuum cleaner, he was met face-to-face with a skull. The police were called, and it was confirmed the skull belonged to Steve. His skull was the only remains of Steve's that were ever recovered, so the coroner was unable to determine the cause of death. All a coroner could determine was that the skull had not suffered any trauma, such as blunt force trauma to the head or a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, Steve's body was found fairly close to where Diana was found, so it begged the question, how come Steve's skull had remained undiscovered for 22 years? Police believe that Steve had been buried when they were searching. This basically cleared him of any and all involvement. Police no longer believed that Steve was their infamous tube sock killer. How could a man kill himself and then bury himself? Ding, ding, ding. The right answer is that he couldn't have. (laughs) But like I said, Steve's other remains were never found. So the idea that he was buried at the time of the search is purely the speculation of detectives. But they are pretty confident with that. Uh, There was another similar case. A woman named Tanya and her boyfriend, Jay, were on a little trip from Canada to the States. Apparently, they were on a mission to buy auto parts for Jay's father's mechanic business um, because apparently parts are cheaper in the States than they are in Canada. Uh, They were last seen boarding the ferry in Bremerton, 
uh, Tanya's body would later be found in a ditch near Alger on November 24th. She had been bound, sexually assaulted, and shot in the head. Police initially believed Jay had committed the crime, but his body was found later 60 miles away from Tanya's, and he had been beaten and strangled, so he couldn't have killed Tanya. However, in this case, we do actually have some resolve. So in 2018, new techniques allowed DNA connected in a uh, match. So two cousins were found and the police soon arrested one of those cousins named William Earl Talbot II, um, a truck driver by trade. So Talbot was found guilty of those slayings, those last two, and is currently serving two life sentences. While it is of little comfort, some peace is undoubtedly felt by the families of Tanya and Jay. But it begs the question, was William Earl Talbot II responsible for more than two murders? Could he possibly be connected to the others? While the modus operandi is similar, a couple killed with the couple separated in death to be discovered separately. None of these bodies had the signature tube sock. Mike Reimer's name has been dragged through the mud especially after his father claimed that he even thought it was a real possibility that Mike could have been responsible for Diana's death. It basically all seems to boil down to that dang manila folder, the one that had written on it, I love you, Diana, and was placed on the inside windshield, almost like displayed like a shrine. People who knew Mike said that the handwriting is definitely his. Apparently, every Christmas, Mike would like write these handwritten Christmas cards to his friends. Sidetrack! squirrel moment. Um, how cute is that? Y'all, the world needs more people sending Christmas cards. It is a dying art, a dying breed of human, if you will, who still send them. And I think we need to bring them back. I love receiving Christmas cards from loved ones. And if they're handwritten, I love them even more. Anyway, I digress. The manila folder and a sample of Mike's handwriting was sent to the FBI in Quantico and they could not definitively agree that the handwriting samples matched. They said that there were certainly characteristics that were similar, but other characteristics of the handwriting was like way off. Perhaps it was written in Mike's hand under duress to possibly frame Mike and elude police because if you're under duress and you're being forced to write something, it would kind of like make changes in your handwriting. Similarly though, one could argue that maybe it was written under duress because Mike had just committed a heinous murder. Like maybe nobody was forcing him to do it. He was just stressed out because he just killed somebody. See, so it like messes with your mind. Like just when you think you have, you go two steps forward, you go one step back. It's so hard. Also, while the other murders involving a tube sock simply use the sock as a restraint, in Diana's case, she was stabbed and strangled with the tube sock. Classic overkill, leading investigators to believe that Diana might have known her killer. But we know that this isn't always the case, okay? I know that a lot of the times they're like, well, it was complete overkill. It must have been personal. But we know that that's not always true because the Zodiac killer displayed similar behavior, like classic overkill, and he didn't know his victims. He might have known a couple of them if you think that he is who a lot of people think that he is. And you can go look at my episode that we covered. I'll try to find out what episode number it is. But I mean, classic overkill is not always because somebody knows you. It could just be one sick son of a gun that's like going crazy. Um, Some internet sleuths have noticed that all of the couples had significant age gaps amongst them. 
I don't know if the age gap would have like made them a target. Like maybe somebody was targeting couples with age gaps. Um, Some people also think that it might be possible that Mike would fight with Diana and then go off into the woods to like check his traps. And then he would target couples that reminded him of his own relationship. Um, But that's, of course, just speculation. Is Mike Reimer the true killer or was there a serial killer tormenting people and murdering them in the woods and he's gotten away with it? I would be interested to know if fights between Diana and Mike correlated at all with the deaths of the other couples. Maybe because that would be interesting to know, but I don't know if we'll ever know for certain. I also wonder if Mike really was the person who murdered Diana. I think Crystal would have been able to relay that information. Personally, and this is my personal opinion, so take it with a grain of salt. I think that there was a serial killer in the woods that wasn't Mike. I think he had this, whoever this tube sock killer is, I think that he had this fascination with killing couples who found themselves camping in isolated areas. I think he stumbled across Diana and Mike and killed them. And it was only after he killed them and began his like ritual that he noticed that Diana and Mike were not alone. They had a young daughter with them that had not been the case before in any of the other murders is it possible that the serial killer simply could not bring himself to harm a child so he instead brought her to kmart if this is the case then our only witness to the murder and the only person we know who has spent a significant amount of time with the serial killer was a two-year-old girl who is now a woman and she can't remember a thing I'm sure that Crystal probably struggles with wanting to remember to help the investigation along and bring her mother and father's killer to justice, but perhaps she is also grateful that her mind has blocked out that part of her memory. But it's the simple yet cryptic and eerie phrase that Crystal used to describe where her mother was that really gets to me. It is haunting. It's going to like give me nightmares. Mommy's in the trees. Does this literally mean mommy's in the trees like in a forest? Or does it mean that Diana and Crystal ran for their lives, possibly hiding in a hollowed out tree when Diana was discovered and Crystal witnessed unimaginable horror? While 35 years have passed since the brutal summer of 1985, the chances of new evidence being unearthed in the woods or anyone talking are dwindling. While some may rest easy believing the case was concluded all those years ago, blaming Mike, somewhere an aging killer may be just waiting to take his deadly secrets to the grave. I'd be curious to hear what you all think. Do you think Mike Raymer is the serial killer? Do you think that it was someone else who may still be at large? Do you think that the serial killer could be that truck driver who was arrested and sentenced for a similar crime? Remember, there was not a tube sock in that case, so it's not so cut and dry. I hope one day, hopefully with the advancement of technology, we will have more ways to determine who murdered these people. They all deserve justice. Do you want to know how to support this podcast? Of course you do. Follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave me a review wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. 
Tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me. And don't feel limited to friends and family. Tell your barber, your gynecologist, your HR rep, the person who comes over to fix your dryer or your refrigerator. I want everyone to know about Mysteries Still Unsolved. But the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? Thank you.